Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Bensvi. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know, either with amazing talents or achievements or unbelievable life stories or just invaluable insights into areas which they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from across the planet and I try to ask them questions that will hopefully help you, the listener, extract something valuable or learn something new or just hopefully get inspired by. You can find all the episodes for the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms such as iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, iHeartRadio, literally all of them, it's there. Uh, if you love the show, if it adds value to your life in any way, shape, or form, please, please leave reviews on iTunes. It really helps grow the podcast. It puts it up there so more people can see it. You can also find all the episodes and everything else, all the information that's updated regularly on the website, which is RoyBensvi.com, R-O-Y-B-E-N-T-Z-V-I.com. And you can sign up for updates as well. Also been updating the YouTube channel, so I've been uploading old episodes pretty much on a daily basis, so you can find it there. And in the future, I hope to make video podcasting as well. If that's something you guys want to check out and are interested in, please shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And also make sure to check out the social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. I post there daily. And lastly, if you guys want to support and help grow the podcast, please go to Buy Me a Coffee or Anchor or Patreon. It is an endeavor to grow this podcast and make it what it should be. And uh, it takes a village. So I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I, you know, I see that there are literally listeners from all over the world in each and every country. So thank you to everyone and on to the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Yet another week, yet another interesting guest, yet another great podcast. This week, I have Michael Moss that was kind enough to join us on the podcast. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. He's also Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. And his new book is Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. I received the book a few days ago. It's great. I just started reading it. I hope to finish it in the next couple of weeks. So I was really excited to have Michael. I've been following his career for many years. He, like I said, he's the author behind Salt, Sugar, Fat. And I've always been interested in the, I guess, percentage. How much free will do we have? How much is, you know, these food giants or really any big corporation? How are they tapping into our innermost biology or psychology to keep us coming back for more, to keep us consuming their products, their services on a daily basis? And what is addiction? We cover what addiction actually is, regardless of the product. You know, it doesn't matter if it's heroin or sugar, addiction is addiction. And this is about an hour and 10 minutes of just packed with information, super informative, really fun. There's a lot of wow moments in the podcast of things that that Michael explains to me that I just had no idea about that are just fascinating. So I'm sure you guys are going to love this episode. I don't want to take up too much time in this intro. 
generally speaking, I'm going to do shorter intros from now on. I feel like there's a whole lot of information in the show notes. I feel like majority of the guests that I have on, people kind of know what it's about. And I just don't want to take up too much of your time with these intros. So that's a little uh, PSA. So enjoy the episode. I hope you love it. And uh, as always, shoot me any emails if you guys have any questions, any comments. I am always happy to hear from you guys. And yeah, without further ado, here is Michael Moss. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Michael. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Oh, a hundred percent. I uh, I just well, firstly, thank you. I just got the book a couple of days ago, so thank you so much. It's beautiful. The cover is beautiful, and I just you know I haven't had time obviously to read the whole thing, but I just got into it. Super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, the cover. The artist did a fantastic job in trying to sort of capture the essence of the of the book, which is. Kind of inside our heads, but also inside these, you know, giant food companies. Yeah. Is it, you know, what's the feeling like when you have a new book and you've been writing it and it's been in your head and maybe only a few friends have uh, read it and then it's out into the world? Well, you you have to, you know, it's that's a really interesting thing because you, you, you have to start thinking about it differently. You, you have to start talking about it. And so, you know, as opposed to being in your little world and typing on the typewriter, right? Making it happen. Um, and so kind of the way I talk about it is, is fundamentally much different than the, yeah. the way it's kind of, it's kind of written. And it's, it's both storytelling. Um, but, 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 but the way you tell those stories are, are, are different. Yeah. I mean, you've had a long, <laughs> this isn't your first book. I mean, you wrote Salt, Sugar, Fat. Uh, you're a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, NYT bestselling author. And this new book, Hooked Food, uh, Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's, you know, you weren't always into food. Like, that's not what you were covering, you know, a couple of decades back, right? What, what When did that switch happen? And I guess what made that switch happen that you started to cover food so uh, extensively? Yeah, so in 2008, I was in Algeria interviewing some Islamic militants um, when a couple of FBI agents showed up at the New York Times in New York looking for me. Um, okay. I'd been traveling to Iraq, tormenting the Pentagon for its failure to equip American soldiers with body armor. Okay. And then I was wandering around the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, um, Morocco, Alge and, and Algeria. Um, it's kind of looking critically at the war on terrorism and how that was sort of, if anything, encouraging um, militants to, to recruit more people for, for, for the war. And um, according to the FBI, somehow I'd managed to end up on an Al-Qaeda hit list. And my oh, wow. editors immediately ordered me home. Well, it wasn't really clear what was going on. It may have just been Algeria wanting to get rid of us, but um, I took the next plane home and and I was, I think I was pitching a story about, you know, U.S. arms sales overseas when my editor at the time said to me, hey, Michael, what do you think about peanuts? So this is now 2008. I go, like, I thought she was joking, right? She goes, no, yeah. no, no, there's been an outbreak 
There's been an outbreak of salmonella in peanuts that are, be, that are being produced in southern Georgia on the Alabama border. And, and they're making people sick all over the country. Like, you know, so I go down and that was my first kind of foray into the underbelly of this of this processed food industry, um, because weeks were going by and the companies using these peanuts as ingredients and thousands of products, you know, oh, hadn't wow. even figured out that they were using them. So they lost control of the food chain. And then I looked at E. coli and hamburger. And, and that was kind of a story about the industry intentionally not taking some steps that could have ensured, better ensured our, our safety. And, and I was looking at sort of more kind of accidental problems of food when a fabulous source of mine, a scientist who tests meat for E. coli said to me, you know, Michael, as tragic as these incidents of contamination are, you really should look at the stuff my industry is intentionally adding to its products over which it has total control. Um, he was worried about all the salt going into processed food. That led me to look at sugar and fat as this unholy trinity that the processed food industry um, uses to get us to not just like their products, but to, but to want more and more of it. So what's more dangerous, Al-Qaeda or processed foods? <laughs> well, you know, um, what's more bigger and important to people? Absolutely processed foods. I mean, the yeah. numbers are staggering. I mean, even before the pandemic, we passed 42% clinical obesity rate in this country. Wow. Um, you know, millions of people with type 2 diabetes, even, even gout. And so if you look at kind of the, the public health consequence, no question our our, you know, growing dependency on these kind of convenience foods is, is, um, is, is, is more significant. Yeah. You know, leading up to this interview, I, I did a, a week of no sugar. I was like from, I think it was like Sunday to Saturday. I was like no sugar. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a breeze. It wasn't very easy, but it wasn't the most difficult thing in the world. It just needed some, uh, you know, focus. I definitely fought some serious cravings along the way. I don't know if I could do that for a year or even for like six months. That'll be very difficult because like you have to really look at everything and, and think before you eat. And it's just, it's, it's a little bit time consuming, but I did feel good after, after that week. And I just wonder, you know, before we get into the whole issue of, of, of what the companies do, how much weight do we put on, on personal responsibility? I mean, all these companies, right. doesn't matter if it's Food, fashion, credit cards, alcohol, Twitter. Everyone wants us to be using their service or product as much as possible. And I think food companies are probably the same. So how much personal responsibility should people take for their actions, I guess? Yeah, no, it's a, that's an important point. If, you know, if we had had this conversation five years ago and you had said to me, Twinkies are as addictive as heroin, I would have laughed a little bit and said, you're, you're nutso, right? Yeah. But, I have to say now, there, you know, after doing the research for this book and meeting scientists who used to study drugs and now study drug addiction and now study food and food addiction and, and looking at the documentation and talking to people inside the food industry about what they do, I have to say that there's little doubt in my mind that a lot of these products are even more problematic than smoking and alcohol and, and cigarettes because it, at some point, and addiction can sort of happen on a spectrum. But at some point, the cravings that we get for these products 
overwhelms our free will, our willpower to to do something about them. And I think that's one of the big lessons that we draw from the world of of drug addiction is that, look, there are people who can casually smoke, drink, take drugs, take it or leave it, right? Not everybody gets hooked on those things. And the same thing is certainly true of, of, of food. But but when you develop, you know, a really bad habit for not just sugar, but convenience foods and, and foods that are fast, I like to call a lot of these products we'll talk about as fast groceries, um, okay. that can cause you to lose control in a way that that personal responsibility isn't isn't sort of part you know it isn't in the equation it's it's out of our control at that point so the same people that would be prone maybe to getting hooked on i don't know whatever it is heroin whatever the drug is those are the same people yeah cigarettes alcohol those are the same people that would be prone to you know instead of eating one twinkie eating 10 twinkies I think I think even more so, and one so one of the one of the things that makes food more problematic is that you know your weak abstention from sugar, not notwithstanding, we yeah. can't just stop eating, right? And so for many people, kind of the you know our dependence on food isn't isn't just kind of cravings for sugar or fat or salt. It's like this slow creep of dependence on these ultra processed foods, which come in many shapes and sizes and whatever. And we can't, as I say, we can't just stop eating. And so that, yeah. that makes dealing with it much more problematic. Plus, you know, you're getting bombarded with advertising and marketing and oh. cues Everywhere. for food constantly, right? I mean, your drug dealer isn't knocking on your door <laughs> on your television set and in your, you know, in your iPhone constantly, yeah. right? At least you can get away from him yeah. or you don't have to walk by a bar. You can detour around it, but you, we can't get away from, from food and this onslaught of marketing, which, which gets inside our heads, even when we're not realizing it. So, I mean, maybe if we take a step back, maybe so people understand, I guess, what is addiction? What constitutes addiction? How, how do, how does yeah. someone get diagnosed as being addicted to something? Yeah, that was my first question. Like, what is this word and what does it mean? It turns out the medical profession doesn't really use the word. They talk about sort of dependency um, because addiction is kind of amorphous. But they did used to try to define it. And they had like a bunch of criteria. And sometimes, you know, in the past, it included things like withdrawal, right? The painful agony of trying to defeat a heroin addiction or tolerance limits where you had to take more and more of the drug to get kind of the same the same feeling. Well, eventually scientists realized that not all drugs work like that. Not all narcotics um, cause withdrawal symptoms um, or harsher drugs, I should say, cause withdrawal or tolerance. So they started to kind of like broaden the definition of addiction. But for me, one of the most, you know, biggest moments in, in, the, in the research I did for this was um, realizing that for decades, the tobacco industry had vehemently denied that smoking was addictive. And in fact, they compared cigarettes to Twinkies. Um, but in the year 2000, the biggest tobacco company of all, Philip Morris, flipped conceded that smoking indeed was addictive, highly problematic. Um, And when they did that, that same year, the CEO of the company was asked in some legal proceedings, well, what's your definition of addiction? And he goes, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Mm. And 
That struck me because not only was Philip Morris at the time the biggest tobacco manufacturer in North America, it was also the biggest manufacturer of processed food because it owned really? General Foods, the old, the old come to the, all kinds of icons in the grocery store, Kraft, and it owned Nabisco, right? The maker of Oreos. Oh, wow. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story as I met the chief lawyer for Philip Morris at the time, Steve Parrish, the general counsel, and we were talking about, it. he was one of those people who could smoke one cigarette a day, put the pack away, <clears throat> and never have any impulse to take it out again until the next day. Usually he smoked in like business meetings. He said that he could not go near a bag of the company's Oreo cookies for fear of opening up and eating half <laughs> of the bag, right? So even insiders in this industry, um, you know, are aware of how powerful their products was. And, and that definition, right, repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit certainly applies to many of us and our dealings with, you know, Philip Morris's processed food. They got out of the business, but the processed food that, that, that we now have in, in the grocery stores. So they they essentially at some point they switched the uh, the line the narrative from this is not addictive to well personal responsibility you you know you should be you should have personal responsibility if you want to you can enjoy these things that are potentially addictive you know like I don't know whatever it is gambling cigarettes alcohol et cetera et cetera or not up to you well actually it went actually it went the other way because when they were denying addiction that was their point they said look you know. Not everybody gets hooked on these. How can you call cigarettes addictive if some people can smoke casually? How can you call it addictive when some people can just decide to quit mm. right there on the spot and like no problem at all? When they conceded addiction, that's when they acknowledged that this is not a matter of personal responsibility for people. This is this is a substance that's, you know, in this case, you know, cigarettes, that's causing some people, not everybody, to lose control over their free will and their and their personal responsibility. And Philip Morris was in fact taking responsibility for making an addictive substance. Yeah, I feel like the tobacco playbook has helped a lot of, um, you know, from climate deniers to all these different uh, lobby groups along the way to say like, oh, this is this is the path, this what they did, this is what we should do in our industry. And, and it worked for a lot of them, it has worked. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting when you look at various industries, whether it's big chemical or big pharma or 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 big anti-climate, big fossil fuels, right? Is that they tend to go through these phases, right? Where the first phase is like denial. They yeah. just say, no, you know, you're wrong, we're not addictive, or we're not we're not problematic. Then they kind of go, okay, enough studies come along, they go, okay. Then they go into the delay phase where they're not quite denying anymore, but they're doing everything. Everything they can to push back government intervention and public awareness and what have you. And then they kind of go into this, you know, pretend capitulation or yielding where they go, okay, you got us, you're right, but we're going to clean up our act and do something better. And the food industry is in that phase now, yeah. much as the fossil fuel industry is with, with climate change. And yeah, and much as the, as the tobacco industry now. So a lot of these big industries have taken that playbook from tobacco and, and run with it, even today when they're pretending to sort of to, to do better by our, our health and climate. Yeah. Do you think, you know, because a lot of times companies, especially big corporations, they are painted... 
or framed in a very uh, conspiratorial way where they're uh, hatching some plan and you have these people up top just like, ooh, how can we get these people addicted? Is it is it that? Because, you know, there's so many conspiracy th- theories out there. Or is it companies that are just wanting to sell their product or service and they are just finding more ways to do it through, uh, you know, science, through engineering food, the food psychologist, our own, you know, evolutionary instincts, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I still don't want to see this as this evil empire that intentionally set out to, to make us ill or, or overweight or, or grossly overweight or, 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 or otherwise ill. I mean, these are and, and I think that that they would sell better products products mm-hmm. that are better for our health if they could. These are companies doing what all companies want to do, which is to make as much money uh, by selling as much product as they can. And as the former president of Coca-Cola explained to me that, you know, when you're in the throes of the battle for space on the grocery store shelf, in Coke's case, it's fighting Pepsi for space on the shelf, space stomach share in, in us, you know, you're not thinking about the bigger implications of that. You're just fighting your competitor day and day and night. And it's only when a lot of these people have sort of left the industry um, that they start to have bigger thoughts. And in fact, I was so struck by how many people I've interviewed who were key players in processed food who've left and now have significant misgivings about their life work. Really? Seeing what their products did to increase our, our dependency on, on those products and that, and that way of eating to the detriment of our health. Yeah. No, I, I think you're 100% correct. I see this from just like the business standpoint. Pepsi and Coke, I mean, they're, they're massive and they have been pumping sugary drinks for decades. And recently, maybe in the last decade or so, they've been buying up all these smaller companies that are producing healthier beverages. And that, you know, that gets me to think like, they don't really care, just like, you know, Burger King or McDonald's, I don't think all of them don't really care about their product. They just, they're a company and they just want to make money. So if the marketplace demands better products, I think over time, they will just, they'll give us better products. No? Or is that incorrect? Yes, that's that. No, no, that's always been kind of their defenses. Look, I mean, we're not philanthropies. If if we can if we can come up with a product that's better for people and then buy it, we'll sell it. But they're not buying it because <laughs> when we walk into the grocery store, we may think we want that less sugary drink, but our brains are guiding our hands to the shelf and grabbing, you know grabbing that sort of that lusciousness. Um, and, you know, and that's one of the big points of, of Hook, too, because um, I, I came across evolutionary biologists who said to me, you know, Michael, it's not so much that food is addictive, right? It's, it's that we, by nature, are drawn toward food in ways that that for much of our you know existence even led us to overeat. The problem is that the food companies have changed the nature of our food in the last 50 years. So now there's a mismatch between our biology and their products. And mm. overeating has become an everyday thing. And so one, I think one of the key aspects of, of looking at these products is not what's on the label, the salt, sugar, fat, but what's not on the label, which is they've discovered ways to tap into and exploit, if you will, our basic biology. We love 
cheap food. I mean, going back to when we lived in hunter-gatherer societies, right? It made a lot more sense to, instead of running down an Impala for dinner, grab that aardvark <laughs> sitting there because it's all about saving energy, right? Well, yeah. that translates. So these companies now have chemical laboratories working for them that mix and match formulas with one overarching goal, which is to knock 10 cents off the price of a box of breakfast toaster pastries, knowing that we'll get excited about that. Um, oh, no. We love of instinctually variety, right? It's why humans were able to populate different parts of the world and fall in love even with eating whale blubber, right? Well, variety is why when you walk into the cereal aisle, you'll see 200 versions of sugary starch mm. because the companies know that's an instinct of ours to love, crave, seek variety. And we can talk about four or five other essential instincts of ours that they know how to go after the companies. But that's an American thing, right? Like majority of the world, you go into the supermarket, you're not getting 200 different cereal oh, brands, right? Yeah, but it is changing. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't, you know, my first book, Salt Sugar Fat, got translated into 20 languages because, oh, wow. and here's another sort of pattern, you know, after tobacco and tobacco, you know, conceded, that smoking was addicted back in 2000, it was at the same time moving overseas to countries yeah. that were not paying attention to smoking like we were here in the United States. The same thing has happened with processed food. As more and more people began caring about what they put in, in their bodies in this country, the companies have been selling kind of this American style convenience, highly processed, um, inexpensive food to to Europe, to developing uh, middle class, you know, uh, 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 areas like in Brazil. Um, I mean, throughout the world. So it's kind of shocking now, even to go to a place like. France, which used to laugh at our snacking. I mean, why? Those crazy Americans are like spoiling their appetite for one of the best times <laughs> of the day when people sit down with their families and have a luscious home-cooked meal and linger and talk. That's insane. Well, even, even the French now are like walking down the street, you know, eating and drinking. Um, yeah. I argue, you know, in large part because of the influence and the overwhelming attraction of these these products going after our basic instincts. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has just been exporting, uh, I guess, culture for the last half decade. And it, it's it's in the clothes, it's in the music, it's in the movie stars, celebrities, and, and food and brands, right? It's a part of it as well. The McDonald's, the Burger King. I remember, I think I saw somewhere where a few years ago they opened... Uh, I think off the top of my head, it was a Dunkin' Donuts in in, in Reykjavik in Iceland. And there was a line. They were saying like blocks and blocks. <laughs> <laughs> Just people <laughs> wanting to get the Dunkin' Donuts. You know, the, no, like there's no, no one's immune. Country, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken and, you know, in Africa, it's like... Nobody is immune from this because, again, the, the natural instinct we have for this food that's cheap, it's convenient, it's yummy, tasty, you know, goes back, you know, goes back to the cradle of mankind. I mean, yeah. you know, all the way back to when we when we first stood up and began walking on two legs, our body changed in ways that that attracts us to food. Um, you know, in a in a manner that now is makes us so vulnerable to these products, no matter where we live in the world. You know, it's funny though in in Israel, which is where I'm from originally, all these big uh, companies 
have failed. Except McDonald's, I believe. But, you know, Wendy's, KFC, uh, I don't know, Starbucks, name a big brand. Yeah, as far as like food, uh, you know, the chains of, of these fast food, um, they've all failed. They've all closed shop and left like the the, the local pallets or, or for whatever reason, just didn't jive with whatever they were uh, selling. That is so interesting. But I have a question. What's your famous who is your famous hummus maker in Jerusalem where I've spent time? Oh, that's a tough one. It's 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 like asking. Um, it's like probably going like to Mexico and saying like, "Where's the best taco stand?" It's like controversial because every city, every place, they have the best. There's a few that are very very famous. Um, I've been a- to those, and I but I think that's reflective of the culture there too, which is this deep appreciation for. Yeah. For local, for real, for um, for for just that, which is yeah, who's got the best hummus? Um, okay. um, so hmm. yeah, I, I might be banned from some places if I name someone else. So yeah, I don't yeah, wanna... yeah, no, no, no. Sorry <laughs> to put you on the put you on. That's a that's a hard spot. To uh, be I'm on. joking. There's honestly there's a, a place in my hometown that makes a mean uh, bowl of hummus, uh, but they're really good. I think the other thing is just it's it's a small country. It's hot majority of the year round. People like fresh food. And because a lot of it is grown, we actually grow so much, we export to Europe. And you get, like, I remember the first time I came to the U.S., I ate, I ate a cucumber. And I was like, what, what is this? Like, this doesn't taste like the cucumber I know from Ooh, back home. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's yeah. just because it's all grown very local back home. And it's, you know, delivered to your supermarket within a day or two. And it's not like here where like, they grow it in Mexico or California. Shipped to New York, by the time you get it, it's a, it's a few weeks out, right? And so it's, the, the taste is just, it's, it's different. Oh, I know. You know, I've been to, I've been to, you know, pita, pita shops, you know, for a pita sandwich and they, you know, and they, they put the chickpeas in and the hummus and and then they turn to the, the bin of sort of freshly chopped vegetables, right. Including tomatoes. And I go, God, throw all that other stuff, dump those things in there because they're (laughs) so, they're so tasty and rich with flavor. Um, Yeah. You're, so now we can talk about food memories because you are taking me back instantly. I can I can smell, feel, taste those those pita sandwiches. Um, just talking about it, and that's that's another really powerful aspect of food that makes it more problematic, I think, than even drugs because we begin building memories for food oh. at a really early age, possibly even when we're still in the womb. Scientists talk about the adolescence bump when kids create more stronger memories um, for things than at any other time in their life. And the food companies know that if they can get inside kids' heads when they're forming these memories, um, they'll be there for life. They'll develop brand loyalty. And so that's why Coca-Cola discovered or rather moved to put a soda in the hands of kids in every ballpark in the country, knowing that when they're there with their parents for this joyous moment, right, mm. that that the excitement and joy gets associated with the soda in the brain, in the memory system. And so they will forevermore associate having a, a, a soda with 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 that wonderful, with that wonderful time. That's that's kind of what the power of memory um that's how that's how the food companies are able to sort of take advantage of the power of memory um, for for us. So smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are. E- evil, but so smart. 
Um, yeah, they are. When I just want to go go to a point that you made earlier about the the, the hunter gatherers, because back then we would quote unquote like stock up on on calories, right? Because like you said, like you, your next meal is not granted; it's not a hundred percent. Winter is coming; you have to stock up. You have to, however they. They did that back then. So you wanted to stock up on food and on calories because we were also very active. You're like you would be hunting, you would be out, you would be running, chasing, climbing, maybe, etc. Now we're not as act we're not as active and the food is abundant. So you can just eat all the time. But is our brain still in that like stock up on calories mode like it was, you know, a hundred thousand years ago? So this will blow your mind. So okay. We have sensors in the gut, possibly in the mouth, that can tell how many calories are in the thing that we're eating or drinking. And they do these experiments where they have two glasses of water, and one of them has this substance called maltodextrin, which is a kind of sugar, but weirdly, most people can't taste it or feel it. So that glass of water seems as like ordinary. Do experiments. People will always, almost always choose the glass with the maltodextrin because they're sensing the calories. The brain wants those calories, right? Um, And so what do the food companies do? They make these incredibly calorically dense packed things. I was looking at a bag of Fritos the other day. It wasn't very big. It had 1,440 calories in this one Jesus. little bag that I could easily eat in one setting. But but here's the other mind-blowing thing is that we not only loved calories, our forebears as we were evolving, we loved body fat. We became one of the fattest creatures you know, on the planet in mammals because <clears throat> body fat was so great. It enabled our brains to grow. It enabled us to get through that winter is coming. Yeah. Um, it enabled us to have more babies. And so we became really good at putting on body fat. Well, so what happens now? That body fat turns against us. I had no idea. But body fat is this living, thinking, scheming organ that communicates with the rest of the body um, with one goal in mind, which is defend itself from any effort on your part to get rid of it. And so when you try to diet to lose weight, your body fat is sending signals to the brain that make you hungrier than you actually are. Not only that, and here this goes right to free will, it will send signals that slows down your metabolism, the amount of calories that you burn just sitting around. So you burn less calories and you're less of a threat to the body fat. I mean, body fat works directly. Here's the third thing. As we gain weight, right? And a brilliant scientist out in, in Eugene, Oregon, did this experiment by putting people into brain scans over time. And as those people in the scans naturally gained weight, he noticed that their sensitivity to cues increased to advertising, um, which explains why two people driving the road down the road and see a sign from McDonald's, they may have very different reactions depending on mm. how often they eat at the restaurant, um, but also over time. And the more they they go there and eat that food, the more their brain is going to be excited and the more they gained weight the more their brain's going to get excited just looking at the advertising, the sign, or smelling it, or seeing it, or what have you. Wow. So you 
you call. I told the- you it was going to blow your mind, right? I mean, who, <laughs> yeah. who I'm knew? Like, I'm like processing. I mean, who knew? Who knew that body fat was just so, so cunning in and of itself? And again, you know, it goes back to this mismatch, you know, what used to be our best friend, you yeah. know, a, a little bit of body fat now has turned into this problem because of the our biological mismatch between what we're designed to love and crave and, and, and what the food companies have come with, come up with. So I noticed you called it an organ. Yeah. Yeah, just like the heart, just like, I mean, so, so again, it's an organ because it's not just like this amorphous, you know, material there. It's talking to each other through hormones. It's communicating. So, um, if, and I'll give you, I'll give you another example. I mean, so people, if, when people reduce their body fat for liposuction, um, for appearance sake, yeah, that's fine. But what happens researchers has found is that that body fat will find a way to like sneak back into their bodies and it may disappear from the hips um but it may also then reappear on internal organs which is kind of even more problematic so so that body fat as a thinking organ has a way of defending itself even when you kind of slash at it on one part of your body so and, and if you think you know and yeah and evolutionarily it makes sense right because so you know the up. body is going talk to me body fat i love you i mean you're saving <laughs> me from famine you're allowing me to have more babies so it everything about you know, <laughs> biology makes sense in 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 light of evolutionary in our evolutionary history i i, I learned from from these scientists so is keto or, you know, there's so many diets out there, right? Keto is the one where they're just like fat, 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 like as much fat as possible. And I, I don't I don't even know if they decipher between good fat and bad fat. It just sounds like fat. And there's just like these, I, I don't know. I saw, I saw something recently where it said out of all the diets, keto is the worst. But the people who do keto, they swear by it. They, they absolutely love it. And diets feel like they come and go every few years. Um... I don't know. It's a bill. It's it's billions of dollars of industry, uh, but people know what they have to do, right? I feel like at the end of the day, eat more veggies, eat less sugar, go on workouts. Just those three things will probably like sixty percent of your health, right there. So I mean, I don't know. I'd love to get your opinion on on keto and on diets and that yeah. whole industry. I mean, I'm not I'm not a diet expert or nutrition expert. My sense is that, but from talking to really smart people, my sense is that look, if keto works for you, you love it. Great. I mean, you mm-hmm. probably shouldn't be preaching it to other people, everybody, because it may not work for everybody. Um, what stunned me about dieting overall is 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 kind of the bottom line, which is <clears throat> it works, you know, unless you do something really crazy that's so different that you can't stick to. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They get pulled into kind of extreme diets where they just can't they can make it work for a week or two but then they're back to kind of their their original their original habits what stunned me they're not in, sustainable in, in, long term no that's the problem yeah but but what stunned me in the research for this this new book out is that none other than the largest processed food companies began quietly buying up 
our favorite dieting methods so that Heinz, <laughs> right? Ketchup, et cetera, et cetera, purchased Weight Watchers, right? Really? Um, seeing that people were having trouble with processed food and were starting to gain weight, Slim Fast, Atkins, the South Beach diet, all, you know, all were acquired by big processed food companies. And not only that, but they started marching around the grocery store making new diet versions of their products, yeah. which were kind of just like slightly less bad for you than kind yeah. of a full-size <laughs> thing. So you'd stand in the freezer aisle, right? You know, arguably one of the most treacherous parts of the grocery store. Yeah. And there'd be the Hot Pockets, right? Oh. Made by Nestle. And then there'd be the Lean Pockets made by Nestle. And you're supposed to stand there. And decide, you know, which one are you going to buy this week? I mean, how stressed out am I by family or work that I think I need like the full calorie, you know, hot pocket version? Yeah. How full of you know confidence and, and willpower am I that I can kind of stick to the lean pocket? And is is that even going to matter at the end of the day? So... So, so that to me was kind of the most troubling aspect of dieting, which is that it came to be owned by and controlled by the same companies that, are, that were causing us to lose control over our eating habits. That's funny. That's it's so funny. I saw I saw a documentary the, the other day about the completely unrelated about the college uh, scandal thing, and one of the one of the parents that got caught was the founder that was this lady, and she's the founder of Hot Pockets. And she she kind of paid this guy. You saw that one? I saw that. Yeah, Hot Pockets was invented by, by yeah, I think it was a couple of brothers. Or maybe she's brothers. the daughter of the founder. Th yeah, th th That could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they sold it to Nestle back in, oh, uh, I'll get this wrong, the, the early 2000s anyway, for an enormous sum of, sum of, sum of money. Yeah. Nestle's, um, what are the big companies? Like Nestle's one of them, Coca-Cola's one, Pepsi's one, uh, craft like what are some of the big ones that i think they kind yeah, of own up the whole industry yeah you hit them um pepsico i think is still is number one right now okay. nestle craft which has merged with heinz unilever still has some some food products general mills kellogg's um, who am i who am I leaving out? ConAgra. Um, Procter, I think, is more consumer products. Ooh, um, okay. I'm not sure if they have any more food. I think we've named, there's about 10 big ones. Look, some people like to look at this industry as a cartel yeah. um, because they do tend to control, you know, you know, newcomers into the market. And they've always been bad about inventing their own products, you know, going back decades, right? Um, I mean, they invented instant jello and tang, but <laughs> but really what they're all about now is coming up with a new flavor of potato chips, right? Knowing yeah. that we get excited about that. And so they buy inventions from, from, from upstarts, you know, mom and pop little companies, and then kind of run with, run with, run with those. Um, but, but if you try to independently put like a better for you product on the grocery store shelf, you're up against these giants who control, who control the space, who control the marketing. It's, it's impossible. I, you know, I, I used to have a, a product. Uh, we had a line of these healthy shots that, that were cold pressed and, you know, shelf, uh, not shelf stable. And uh, it is very, very difficult to go to get shelf space in supermarkets. Um, 
very very difficult yeah so yeah and then you have these big box stores that are that are popping up now um you know walmart is no longer the cheapest uh source of food it's now aldi's which came out of germany i think um that's spreading Mm -hmm. across the united states and it's so fascinating to see that you know i mean this is this is deep discount prices on 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 food and you will see luxury and look i don't mean to i don't mean to slight this at all because so many of us are hurting financially where we have to yeah. walk into the grocery store and there's no way we can pay as much for a pint of blueberries as we do for a two pound, three cheese, four meat frozen pizza that's going to feed the whole family. Of course, we have to choose that frozen pizza. But you will see in the parking lot of these deep discount stores, luxury cars. Again, going back to kind of our instinctual excitement that we get over over finding cheap food. So, I mean, is there a difference as far as how people eat like social demographics is it more lower middle upper or is the food addiction and our love for uh you know fatty cheeseburgers just across the board it is it does seem to be across the board i saw a study some time ago that actually people with more money were buying more junk food per capita <laughs> which i thought whoa that's so <laughs> fascinating right um, yeah yeah but but, but but i do think the burden falls and and there is a it's you know it there is this sort of basic inequity and it falls on people with less money with less wherewithal to make these decisions look you know i heard from from sociologists that you know there are women um who eat at mcdonald's um with their family knowing that the food is not good for them, but because the benefit of getting their family together for a meal and that kind of shared experience, be able to talk about things, you know, in their minds outweighs the harmfulness effect of the, of the, wow. of the, of the food. And it's the only place they can afford to go for that family kind of reunion time. That, that's, I think, it's just a stunning example wow. of how this affects, you know, people of less means uh, more than even the rest of us. That is, that is, uh, that's actually fascinating that you mentioned um, McDonald's. The other day, I, you know, I drove to the gym and there's a McDonald's across the street. And, you know, I'm not exaggerating. There was a, a line outside the, the window, you know, because there's a drive through 40 cars, right? Easily 40 cars. And I was like, are, are they, do they have a special? Like, are they, are, is there a sale? Like, why are there so many cars? And I guess that's just how it is almost every night. And I was like, the fact that there, there are people in their cars willing to wait 30 minutes for their burgers and this isn't like I'm. I'm not at a, where I live. This isn't like a food desert. It's not like there are not other options available. There's plenty of restaurants here, and there's a lot of really good food. But still, people choose the the, the golden arches, and they're still going to wait in line thirty minutes. And again, I I guess that goes back to that addiction. It's just like this is what people are addicted to, for lack of a better term. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think I think what's on sale there was the pandemic, and I haven't seen the numbers, but I've heard that we turn to fast food restaurants in, in as never before, probably for really? a couple of different reasons. Yeah, and the same thing happened in the grocery stores. So, pandemic hit a year ago. We thought 
Well, at least we're going to get away from the bending machine at work, right? Um, and so, but what happened for, for many of us is that we turned our kitchen cupboards into bending machines because we went to the grocery store. And those memories began flooding into our brain because we're stressed, we're scared, it's emotions, we're like, start, you know, doing a little bit of hoarding. And we began scooping up snack foods that we hadn't had since we were kids. Snack food sales soared, um, not only in the first weeks of the pandemic, but it continued because we were looking for comfort and we were yeah. you know remembering that you know eating those those toaster pastries as a latchkey kid when you were eight that was like a great thing and if only i can you know relive that experience now in this traumatic time and so um and so yeah that 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 undermined our efforts to kind of improve our eating habits during the during the pandemic by by cooking more food ourselves yeah, it's it's ironic because us staying indoors, eating all the not getting sunlight, right, which is vitamin D, eating all this crappy food is the exact uh, and not getting and not working out because we're home is the exact opposite of what we needed in order to get better. Like we needed sunshine, we needed vitamin D, we needed healthy food, we needed working out, we needed, you know, to to boost our immune system and staying home kind of defeated all, all those things. It was the opposite of what we needed in a way. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, look, this is this has been happening. I mean, so <clears throat> I just saw a study today that it was a limited study, but it actually followed people over time. And on average, they were gaining one and a half pounds a month during the pandemic. Right. And so what was the other headline today? Um, Krispy Kreme was announcing a yeah. free donut. Did I get this right? Every day, if you're vaccinated, I'm not sure if you show your your vaccination card or what. And and okay, I mean, I get it, right? A little bit of excitement in people's lives associating with a good goal like getting vaccinated. Okay, I mean, I'm not gonna like go crazy about that, but. A Krispy Kreme donut probably every day probably isn't what many of us need right now no. to kind of regain control over our health and our eating habits. No, it's ridiculous. It's like the people who are obese are, you know, it's the highest risk group. And you're telling people, we're going to give you free Krispy Kremes. It's like, that's the worst thing. It's the last thing you should be eating. Yeah, the whole thing is, is, is ridiculous. Um, what do you think about vegan processed foods like uh impossible burger beyond meat you know I, I i i eat them i think the impossible is is delicious but i hear uh mixed reviews you know some people are saying that it's much healthier than the alternative some saying it's 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 extremely unhealthy processed foods you know where where are you on that spectrum yeah by the way um one thing i've learned you know recently is that sort of calling people obese is a little, it's a little bit like calling, um, well, what's the word? Um, I guess calling people alcoholic, but, but, but um, the, I think the better way to sort of say that is people with obesity, right? Obesity is a, is a disease um, and it, mm. and it, 
saying it that way. So there's a bit of fat shaming kind of going on out there, which kind of goes back to this issue, like how much of this is willpower and how much is free will involved. And for so many people, it's not a matter of willpower. This is a this is a disease that sets upon them. And so um, I began framing it, you know, and not saying obese people, but people with obesity. It's a subtle it's a subtle difference, but I think it makes a it makes a big difference. Um, yeah, okay. one of the Going forward, sort of one of the big questions here is like, what do we do to, you know, how do we how do we change how we value food? Um, and, and what are the things we can do and what lessons, you know, um, can come out of uh, the addiction world um, that can help us sort of change how we value food? And and it gets complicated because there's so many aspects of food. So when I grow go grocery shopping, you know, I'm, I'm now thinking about not just my health, um, but I'm thinking about, okay, how were the workers treated who made that food? What was the impact on the environment, right? There could be like four or five things and it may all drive you crazy. And sometimes we can only focus on one of those things. But I think, I think what you're seeing now is this emergence of tech food, right? Really smart people from Silicon Valley who are reinventing, truly, um, some of our most favorite things to get rid of the meat or the dairy or the eggs or the, the what have the soy. Um, and, and one of the challenges there is that they may be able to fix one of the things. Like, so if you're going for Impossible Burger, you've solved the animal welfare problem, right? And, and maybe, the, maybe the climate issue, I'm not sure. But it may still have the same health profile as a, as a regular fast food um, burger. And so it gets complicated. Yeah. So it's, you know, if, if, if there's an option, should still probably have some veggies instead of going for that impossible burger. You know, should, so I guess, should we, I don't know if this will ever fly, but should this, should we go through some sort of food literacy in school, being able to, to kind of like oh decipher, my God. decipher food labels, ingredients, ethical standards, oh. uh, like you said, environmental impacts by food. Like there's not, because there's not a lot of transparency on the part of big corporations, is it not incumbent on us to, to teach kids or for the government to implement some sort of a mandatory course in schools or, or, or in colleges? I'm so glad you raised that because, you know, we used to have this thing called home economics where girls, mm -hmm. but also to, you know, some extent, boys were taught how to plan, shop, cook for themselves, right? Well, that went by the wayside in the 1980s for a couple of reasons. One being that the people teaching home economics, you know, suddenly had to start dealing with some bigger society problems like teenage pregnancy or helping their students get jobs when they got out of school. And so they mm. began focusing on those things and away from, and they kind of dropped food. I totally think that one of the ways we can solve our trouble with food is to put home economics back in the school, but, but in a smart way, like not preaching healthy food or great recipes, you know, by itself, but kind of teaching food as politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, you know, as kind of free will and personal responsibility. I mean, do you want to be in charge of what you're putting in your body and, and fueling your body? Or do you want these 
multinational companies who only care about money making that decision for you. And when you frame it that way, I think kids really, really get it, even young kids. Um, and they can see food in this bigger context and have conversations about it um, in that way. So so that would be one of 10 things I would do to to try to start changing this the, the total kind of food environment that we're in that, that works so much against us. Yeah, because I think most people are good people. I think most people, if you, if you, if you know, if you had, it's kind of like cigarettes right now, now where they have pictures. I don't know if this is true in the U.S., but some countries have pictures of the effects of cigarette use, and it'll just be horrific pictures. And still, some people, you know, smoke because it's it's addictive. But I feel like if you told people, like, look, you know, this meat was, uh, I don't know, produced in this way. Uh, the workers that made the food were treated in a certain way. This has X amount of CO2 that comes with it. I think A, companies would start acting a little bit differently. But B, I think consumers would definitely choose the the the, the better food, the less, you know, environmentally harming, the less uh, harming on animals, people, etc. Yeah, no, I think so. Um Although in the throes of shopping, when we're distracted and thinking about other things, it can be harder to think about those things, right? Until you kind of develop the habit and then you don't have to think about it. You're not going to buy that product because you've already researched it. And, you know, that's not like that's not fitting in my value system for food. But I'll, but I'll give you another kind of related example. Sure. So a number, a few cities in, in this country, I think, but also in other countries have started to impose tax, a special tax on sugary items like soda, kind of with the idea that a little bit of nudge, right, it's called nudge marketing, will cause people to buy less of their that product, even oh. if it's, you know, just a few pennies. And it does seem to be working. And again, this makes sense evolutionarily because we love money as much as we love right junk food right and so yeah. when you're standing in the store and suddenly that soda costs 10 cents more it can give you that little bit of leverage that you need um to resist and if your kid's tugging at your leg saying I want that soda. You can say to them, okay, do you want to spend your allowance buying that soda? And then suddenly yeah. you get like, whoa, <laughs> my money. <laughs> so, so, so even, even things like that. And, and that's kind of what happened with cigarettes too. They put the warning labels on the, on the yeah. packets, but they also put a huge tax on them. And I think that that as much as anything sort of had that impact of helping us sort of lessen our dependence on on those on on those substances why why is processed foods the the high fat high sugar the the, the salty foods why are those so addictive but celery or kale or brazil nuts like why is like why is the non-healthy stuff much more addictive than the healthy stuff yeah i think there's two reasons one um the calories, which we've talked about, we're drawn to calories. So anything with a lot of calories that's packed in there, um, we're going to we're going to love. Um, two, um, you know, a lot of people focus on sugar um, because, in fact, they lose control with sugar. I've met people who can't touch a grain of sugar or processed white flour without because it kind of acts like sugar in the body. 
without losing control. And and so yeah. I think you have to look at the, that unholy trinity of salt, sugar, fat too. So one of the hallmarks of drug addiction is speed. The faster a substance can hit the brain, the more apt it is to lose control and get you to act impulsively, mm. compulsively. And it turns out there's nothing faster than food, fast food, in the way that it hits the brain. Scientists did this little experiment where they sat people down and said, we want to find out how fast you taste sugar. So they put a little sugar in. And so when you taste it, press this button. So they put a little sugar on their tongues. And because of the way we're designed, Right. So so heroin doesn't, you know, didn't create a new system for for getting the brain addicted. It uses the system that the body designed to get us hooked on food. But food has a little trick that even heroin doesn't. So when the sugar touches your tongue, the sugar doesn't go to the brain. It sends a signal through the taste buds that goes to the brain. And in this experiment, that signal went to the brain, the reward center, which told the person to push the button. And they pushed that button in barely over half a second. Wow. Compared to smoking, which can take as long as 10 seconds to sort of fully affect the brain. And, you know, narcotics and alcohol can be kind of somewhere in between that. But that put, you know, that put fast food and fast groceries in a, in a whole new light for, for me. Because that, besides the calories, it's the speed that those products, right? Celery stick, you got to chew that sucker, right? The yeah. fiber in there and the water is slowing you down. And even when it hits your gut, it's still the gut is moving very ponderously. You know, compare that to the Oreo cookie, which is partly melting in your mouth and, and just hitting your stomach and sending those tremendous signals to the brain of, wow, love those calories. Let's get more of that. Yeah. <laughs> do I mean, do you look at food? You've been covering food for a very long time now. Do you look at food differently? Now, when you're in the supermarket, are you just like, I can't. Oh yeah, I mean, I can't believe this. Looking at items, (laughs) I do. I mean, I do. People look at me because I'm like laughing to myself in the aisle because (laughs) knowing all the tricks that they played, you could see so many of these like right on the front of the label. I mean, they're they're not they're not hiding this stuff, right? When they splash the word "new" or added protein on the front of their labels, that is a marketing strategy based on their cunning understanding of our psychology and our biology and what have you. Um, What's really changed for me, though, is is looking for ways that I can turn the tables on them. And so having marched around the store and added sugar to everything that didn't used to be sweet before, right? I now walk into like the spaghetti sauce aisle instead of buying a jar of prepared sauce that can have the equivalent of a couple Oreo cookies of sweetness and a tiny half cup serving, right? I grab a can of plum tomatoes, bring those home, and I swear I can make a tomato sauce in 93 seconds flat. (laughs) Now, Granted, the more it simmers, the better taste yeah. it's going to be. But there's even recipes out there where you don't have to chop the onion. You just cut it in half and put it in the sauce. And over time, <laughs> it oozes out those luscious sort of onion tastes. And so convenience is something that the fast food industry, fast groceries, processed food stole from us. And mm-hmm. so I'm all about looking ways, looking for ways that 
that I can steal convenience back from them. I'll give you another example. We were trying to cut back on soda in our house because I have two boys who are, you know, love sugary drinks. And we discovered that plain seltzer can be almost as exciting as sugar. And scientists don't understand because it's a little weird, right? Because bubbles have like effervescence has like a little bite. There's a little bit of pain. Well, in fact, there's a very fine line between pain and pleasure when it comes to a lot of our, our body senses. Um, and my boys have been able to, to replace sugary soda with plain seltzer, you know, and, and get away with that sort of, you know, and resist the temptation to go back to the sugar. Well, where did plain seltzer come from, right? Well, before the companies began dumping sugar into soda, that's what people drank was plain seltzer. There's a town in Germany named seltzer because everybody's there as connoisseurs. They have like different oh, really? kinds <laughs> and they would, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would sit down and have like argue over which plain bubbly water was like better, <laughs> better than the, the next. So... You know, we bought an appliance from Israel, actually. I don't uh, need to mention their name. Stream. Well, there you go. But, yeah, yeah. you know, as a, as a, as a, and that's like sitting on our kitchen counter now. And, and so there's something else we've taken back that the industry, I feel, kind of stole from, from us. So, I, you know, I feel like slow food is always better than fast food. It's, uh, I, you know, the, the food that your wife or your mom or you yourself, whoever it is that you kind of grew up on or someone that's loving, that's in the family, they, they, they work for hours and they let it simmer sometimes overnight. And I, that's the best food. There's no comparison, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, look, you can, st- I mean, there's no way we can, I mean, I say this, but there's, you know, certainly with salt, right? Most of the salt in our diet comes from processed food. There's like no way a home cook can add as much salt as these processed food companies do because they're using those ingredients for other reasons, preservatives, texture, to add some color to the food because there's like nothing else going on in their products, right? So they have to do that. So, I mean, granted, right? I mean, Comfort food, right? I mean, you know, what if you're eating mac and cheese and having a big homemade chocolate cake? But but the thing is, I think, is that home cooking enables you to balance that out. So you're not just eating a homemade chocolate cake every night. And in fact, dessert may not be on the menu every night. Um, you're mixing up those things. And there's something about the cooking process itself that slows us down and prepares the body for that food coming in. Not to mention the love and the ritual of having a, a homemade from scratch meal. There's nothing that beats that. Yeah. Kind of hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, this is all this breakfast yet. food. Um, <laughs> So, oh my God, you know, I would be talking to people who invented like certain potato chips, right? And they would be, these are scientists and bench chemists who are explaining to me, you know, how the the crunch in potato chips excites the brain and the more crunch, the more we'll eat. And I would get like these cravings just talking to them. I'd I'd want to like end the interview and go get a bag and start eating. It's <laughs> it's really great what food does to you or not so great. No, it's it's you know, I was literally for a couple of seconds I was like transported to my mother's house and I could I could almost like smell the the food that my dad would cook like over like the weekend. It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, again, those memories. 
Yeah. They can work for us as they do for the food memories too. Cause I have those memories of my mom's cooking too. I mean, she worked outside of the house, but Sunday evening, she would make like two or three dinners for midweek that she'd pop in the freezer and, and pull out. She was a, she was a fantastic cook. And, and when I cook for my family, I think of her and those memories. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things about, about kind of reclaiming that instead of what the industry imposes on us, which is like try to get us associate their sugary cereal with cartoon care, right? In some ways, they've they've even stolen the language of food from us, right? You know those fast food restaurant menus where they use colorful language to describe basically a cardboardy tasting thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, it could occur to me that we might be able to like design menus for home cooking, right? Where that plain pasta dish on Thursday night was okay, pasta for the, but what if you called it, and actually there's a chef who used to work in the White House for Obama who came up with this. He called it the lucky pasta because <laughs> the president had that pasta and had like a fantastic event that evening. I forget what it was and forevermore. So what if you call your Thursday night pasta the lucky pasta because your kid won a ball game that, that yeah. day? Or, or, you know, we can, that's another thing I think that we can reclaim from these these companies. Yeah, I feel like they've, because of the branding, everything is is a little bit more synthetic. Everything's a little bit more artificial. And convenience, like you said, is a big thing. It, you know, the, 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 um, the sharing, the communal aspect of the family coming together, the smells over the whole day, the anticipation of, oh, I'm going to eat this Friday dinner with the family. And at, that already starts at 2 p.m. And the family coming, at least this is, you know, I'm just talking like back home. Every country is a little bit different. That, that you cannot replace that. And when big brands try to synthesize that in a certain way, it, it's just, it's, it's like a generic version of, of the real thing, you know? Yeah, no, and that's another parallel to drugs. I mean, one of the hallmarks of drugs um, or alcohol or cigarettes is that, you know, it's really exciting to kind of take it in, but then it's not very satisfying or, yeah. or, or you know, over, over, over the long term, right? It's almost just... All the all the all the excitement is in that that liking it and wanting it rather I should say and the liking and I think the, I think the same is true with a lot of these 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 products too and you know if you want to go on about addiction too I mean we're we're addicted just to buying stuff I mean I don't know about oh. you but <laughs> yeah. I have to like. You know, when Amazon says, you know, one click here, I have to like yank my hand away from the computer. <laughs> the thrill of just kind of pushing that button, even for like, you know, a stupid spatula. And, and the problem is I don't, I don't want that spatula to get delivered tomorrow on the backs of, you know, of a poor person who's running around racing, trying to make ends meet, delivering these things the next day, right? I, I want I want slow delivery. Um, but 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 my bigger point is just that that thrill of buying yeah. stuff is also a characteristic of of these processed foods as well, and that's why they put so much effort into the marketing and the packaging. Right, it looks so beautiful in the packages. Right, and then you like pull out the stuff and you go like, "What is this? I don't even recognize. Like, what was this made of? Is there grain in here? I don't <laughs> even recognize that." Which is another sort of definition of ultra processed foods. It's been so highly engineered and and modified and and technologized that you can't 
recognize what went into it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree that that clicking of, you know, the buying, ooh, it's oh. like you have those couple of seconds of like almost tingle. It's like such a good feeling. But, you know, not, not to get too dark, I had um, one of my guests a couple episodes ago was Amelia Pang, who she's a, a journalist of uh, Uyghur descent. And she was explaining that a lot of the stuff that we buy here in the U.S. is actually made in in, in those labor camps in China. And we don't really know, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily even the whole thing. It could be just like, you know, a part of of uh, of some tech thing or a part of whatever it is that we do. And some of it is manufactured in those labor camps. We don't know what it is, but it just goes back to this obsession of buying. We're buying, we're buying, we're buying all the time, stuff we don't need. And there's consequences to that, both environmental and human impact. It's because we've allowed these companies to set our standards, you know, to define, to tell us what we value in these products. We value speed, cheapness. That's what they're telling us, right? And so, you know, it's up to us to sort of change that and go, no, I value the life of the worker who made that product. You need to tell me about that and assure me that they were taken care of or I'm not going to buy your product. Yep. That's what it should be. So, Michael, uh, we're, I know we're almost done. Um, I guess I want to ask you. Now we're in this pandemic before when you used to release a book, I'm assuming, you know, you would go on all the talk shows, you would, you know, do interviews. Now it's you're sitting at home and it's Zoom. Do you prefer this model in a way? Because maybe like you can there's a bigger reach. You can, you know, talk to more people rather than having to travel around the world and talking. Or do you like the old model where it was like a one on one and you would feel the crowd and, and that kind of stuff? You know, there are some benefits to Zoom, I've, I've kind of noticed. So in my spare time, I'm learning to play the cello. And I was, wow. I, had, I had lessons in person, but it seems like it almost rained every night. I had a cello lesson and I was going to the studio and, you know, and, and I'd come in like drenched riding my bike to the cello lesson. But, but, and now on Zoom, it's actually kind of interesting the way you can kind of interact with people. But no, I, before the pandemic, I mean, I was giving not only interviews to sort of media in person and like the TV studio, but talks on the stage before big audiences, right? I mean, several thousand people at a time. And, and there's nothing like sort of being on the stage and being able to look them in the eye and scan the audience and connect. But, but also to kind of, you know, as a public speaker, to be able to read the room, right? Because yeah. every audience is kind of different as, as, as comedians know well. And so some of my jokes would work and sometimes they wouldn't. Um, and it's really hard, almost impossible on Zoom to kind of get that feedback. So that's what I, that's what I really miss is that personal connection. And it's starting to come back. I'm starting to book um, some big talks again with, with okay. audiences of people who care about food, doctors and, and organizations and universities. And so I'm, I'm very excited that I see the light at the end of this tunnel, I hope, for, for all of us in I much hope. more important ways than, than my, my speaking business or book writing business. Yeah, no, I, I hope so too. I uh, I can I can I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of everybody when I'm like we're sick of this. Let's get back to normal. Gets back to just even being less divided as a country. Just being nicer to everyone. Being able to go out, let businesses continue, and just uh, yeah, I don't know, get back to normal. I guess. 
Yeah, though there's a lot of normal we probably don't want to go back to. So maybe yeah, we yeah. should start thinking about go forward <laughs> to a better a better world. You said it better than me. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, this was a pleasure. Really great talking to you. Thanks for having me and take care. Where, where can people, before you leave, where can people find the book? Where can people follow you? What, what are the best places? Oh, yeah. So I do have a, a website. I, I, I manage it myself. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's uh, well, it's fun. But it's mossbooks.us. And I'm posting all the interviews that I'm doing for Hook. So it's a lot of fun. People can click on it right there and get direct links. They can buy the book there. Um, Salt, sugar, fat, I mentioned is in 20 languages. They can still buy versions of that uh, through my website as well. And my email is there. So if any of your listeners want to reach out to me, absolutely. I love getting notes and, and, I'll, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Oh, that's awesome. That uh, Yeah, most people don't do that. So that's awesome that you do. Absolutely. No, I love I love that contact, especially now during the pandemic. Okay. Well, guys, go buy the book. It's great. I just started it. It is super informative. And again, Michael Moss, thank you so much. I had a great time. Likewise. Thank you. Take care. Bye.